I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This is our third and final installment on our series on media and entertainment and its impact on global affairs. Today, we're joined by Bonner Price, who's chief of staff at a mobile gaming and interactive media company. She was previously the founder of a startup in the media space and worked on content strategy at Netflix. Bonner, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Bonner, will you tell us how you originally became interested in media and in entertainment? Yeah. So I was actually a gamer before I was a TV watcher. So growing up, we were not allowed to watch TV in my house. My parents were pretty strict about it, unless it was a Sunday morning at my grandmother's house or at a friend's house. But my dad had founded an early pre-dot-com bubble startup in the computer space. And so they were pretty liberal about letting us play with computers. And so I was pretty early into playing The Sims and Civilization and some early, early video games. And I remember just really enjoying that and loving the, the ability to kind of lead your own story. So, and the educational aspects as well, particularly in children's gaming. I don't know if you guys remember Oregon Trail and Math Blaster, but I probably spent maybe a month of my life on those games. And, you know, I think they helped me, you know, as a woman become better at math and also, you know, get to make decisions and see how they played out in a way that traditional entertainment doesn't necessarily let you do. So, but as I got older, I got less interested in gaming. I felt like a lot of the stuff that was coming out in gaming really wasn't designed for someone like me. And so I kind of went more the traditional TV and film paths. When I you know, left home to go to college, I finally could watch as much TV as I wanted to. And I really indulged in that, which is what led me to Netflix is really enjoying international stories where I got to work on their international content strategy team, helping figure out what original TV shows they should create around the world and locations outside of the United States. What did you learn from creating for people outside of the U.S. bubble? Like, were there particular cultural things that you would need to tie to, or were there particular ideologies that you had to think about when you were creating for another culture? Yeah, so I was pretty early on in Netflix's international experience. So Netflix launched, I started Netflix in 2015, and in 2016, they did their global soft launch. So anywhere they had rights to content, they basically just flipped the switch and whatever was already in the catalog was out there for people to utilize. For the most part, it wasn't localized. It wasn't personalized. It was just whatever they happened to have rights to that they could turn on in Indonesia. They did. And so part of my job at that time, I was originally working in Latin America, but I switched over to the Asia, excluding Japan and India team. And that is a really interesting part of the world because it's a lot of different languages, a lot of different cultures a lot of original content coming out there. So, you know, Vietnam has its own TV shows. Thai land has a lot of great soap operas, but our budget was pretty limited. So we couldn't create something for every market. So we needed to find something that would travel across borders and really work well. And Korean drama travels incredibly well. (laughs) Um, It travel and has a history of traveling to the region as well. And so it's kind of finding those pieces of content that held universal appeal, regardless of what language you spoke and what culture you come from. And sort of the telenovela, Korean drama, love stories, I think are really universal language where 
pretty much every culture around the world has some form of that type of entertainment that they create, which is really uplifting and a little dramatic and a very well-known storyline. So that was kind of something that, you know, not a content genre that I had really been a huge fan of before, but seeing how much people love it and how much it lightens people's day really taught me how to love it. So Bonner, you spent some time growing up in Spain and have also lived in Mexico and spent time in China. And I'm I'm curious how living living abroad or or, you know, kind of living in different contexts has shaped the way that you think about content creation and the sort of cross-cultural value of media and entertainment. Growing up in different places around the world gave me more appreciation for different types of stories and different types of experiences and how that can make for a better experience. So, you know, we've seen it in the entertainment industry. We've also really started to see it in the gaming industry as well. So in the entertainment industry, you have things like Squid Games, you have things like Casa de Papel, really pieces of content that have gone fully global and delighted audiences all around the world. And part of the strength of those shows is they're bringing an element of their culture and creating for a much more unique and interesting and engaging viewing experience. In gaming, you see it in things like Genshin Impact. Genshin Impact is a game built by Hoyoverse, which is in part owned by a Chinese gaming company that you might have heard of before. And what they have built is one of the most successful mobile games of all time, where they go back, you know, a couple of years. It's really an anime game, pretty similar to Zelda Breath of Wild. And they have these different cultures that they go around visiting. So every six weeks to 12 weeks, they'll release a new map. And so far, they've gone to a culture that seems a little similar to German culture. They've gone to another one that seems pretty similar to Chinese culture, another one that has a lot of basis in Japan. And they're now sort of adding maps to sort of an India slash Middle East hybrid that's been pretty interesting to see. And I think it makes for one of the most global games in the world because everyone can find something for themselves in it. I find myself wondering if content can be even more cross-cultural when it's designed for kids. I remember when I was little watching like Muzzy in French or like watching like My Neighbor Totoro, which was like a Japanese, you know, it's Japanese film. But I was so little that it was just animated and it was fun and I probably had no idea what was going on. But like kids are very able to absorb content that might be designed for a different audience or in a different language, but is sort of like universal in nature. And in many ways, like I think for me, that kind of died out over time. And now, I mean, now, you know, I, I maybe am seeking out more kind of global content or I'm watching Squid Games or whatever. But um, but it is interesting to me that like in kind of like the earlier years, it's almost like easier to make those jumps, I think. I'm kind of, but, you know, maybe I'm, that's just my own experience. Yeah, I mean, I think that's particularly interesting in light of Roblox. So Roblox is, I would say, one of the titans of kids gaming. And Roblox is UGC, which is user-generated content. So you have people from all around the world creating content in teams. Sometimes they're kids. Oftentimes they're adult production companies. But they're really, there are people in Romania. There are people in the Ukraine. There are people in Africa. There are people in the United States and Mexico and Argentina and all over Asia creating games that kids anywhere in the world can access. And I am so jealous. I would have loved to have that as a kid to get to try all of these games that were created from people around the world that 
really allow you to explore in the way that you want to explore and are constantly changing and constantly adding new things. I wonder how much of this kind of thing is letting a common world culture come together. Like you said, the TV novella is kind of a, a style of um, entertainment that's that's true everywhere. Um, and I think Zoe's point of like kids, it's easy because kids love flashing lights, like high pitched voices, like like monsters and and animals. And I wonder how much even things like Squid Game, even things like Young Rich and African, is really just a coming together of sort of a common world middle class around gaming, around TV shows, rather than a sort of like, ah, I'm so cultured because now I'm watching, you know, French cinema and I'm playing Japanese video games. Yeah, you definitely see the stuff that travels the best is the stories that hold the most universal appeal, which is very rarely elevated French cinema and more commonly telenovelas, which, you know, I think says something about all of us as people. You know, one of the things we saw when I was at Netflix is the hard, there was some index that tracks how hard it is, how hard people perceive their life. And the harder people perceive their life in a particular country, the more they're looking for elevated and uplifting content relative to sort of dark, intense, scary stuff. And I think the pandemic brought that out in all of us where a lot of people were trending towards happier, lighter Ted Lasso stories of the world. That was not necessarily true in gaming where, you know, gaming has, I think gaming has a way to go relative to entertainment and how we're bringing stories in from around the world. So, you know, China and Korea do have huge gaming industries and are bringing a fair amount of incredible content, showcasing their cultures, showcasing things that they find in- interesting. Same with the United States and Europe, and to some extent, other parts of the world. But making a game is a lot more difficult than making a television series. And so, for example, India is very underrepresented in gaming, even though they have an incredible entertainment industry, they have not really built into the interactive space as much yet. And so it'll be interesting. I'm hoping in the next couple of decades, we're going to see more and more companies bringing in international gaming experiences that bring their culture to the world. You're starting to see it a little bit in Africa. There's a company that's received a fair amount of venture capital funding that is going after sort of mobile gaming in Africa. And they're starting to bring sort of like traditional African stories and games and experiences and, and publishing them across the continent. You mentioned China. and I would love to spend a little more time there. I mean, so Tencent owns big stakes in a bunch of U.S. gaming companies, I think, including Riot Games and Epic and Activision. And, you know, I suspect that's partially because these are really good and interesting businesses. But there's also a geopolitical dimension here. And I'd love to share more about that. Yeah, Tencent's particularly interesting. They're more limited in being able to invest in U.S. games right now. So I would say they've turned a lot of their focus towards Europe, where there are fewer limitations, and they're going more after European video games. So previously, they'd had a strategy where, you know, they have their own internal games, and then they have investment games. And the investment games, they pretty much left alone. They didn't bring a lot of their expertise or their learnings to helping those games. They just kind of said, here's some money. You do you. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. 
which, you know, I think is unfortunate because they have an incredible amount of gaming knowledge and expertise across their portfolio that they could bring that they really don't. In the United States, they're a pretty big investor in Riot, which does League of Legends, as well as a number of other things that's based here in Los Angeles. In Europe, they own Supercell, which, you know, I think hasn't had its best year, but it is a very beloved mobile gaming brand, as well as a particularly interesting corporate culture. They operate very small, lean teams. Tencent isn't the only large company going after m and in gaming. Gaming is an industry where, I don't know if I have data to support this, but there is more M&A in gaming relative to other industries. And, you know, I think part of it comes from the traditional publisher model that you have in gaming, where you have a development studio that comes up with the idea of the game, they build it, they design it, and then going to market and gaming is really tough. So you have to figure out how to get it to consumers. And so historically, this meant spending tens of millions of dollars on user acquisition. And these gaming studios didn't have the expertise to do that. So they would go to a publisher that would help them with their go-to-market plan. And to be honest, the investment in UA, the user acquisition investment. And so, you know, as part of that process, a lot of those companies got acquired by publishers and the publishers would sort of acquire games underneath them, particularly in their mobile space. So because of that, you know, you see companies like Zynga. Zynga didn't do a great job growing the games they had, but when they were acquired, they were heavily rewarded for their ability to do M&A and bring in early stage games and bring them onto Zynga's platform and, and be able to do more with them. Tencent has a s- similar model in China. And I think now and they're, they're switching their gaming focus to do more full takeovers rather than what they did in Activision Blizzard, which is a partial investment. They're doing more like what they do with Supercell, which is they acquire 100% of the company. But I do think there is like a very intriguing geopolitical element to gaming outside of of Tencent of how we portray people in games. And I think having more international exposure is a good thing. One thing I found really interesting is it feels like games have now sort of migrated to back to television or it's becoming this weird kind of circular thing where like, you know, now there are TV shows like The Last of Us, which is based on a video game, and also shows like the Netflix series Kaleidoscope, which is maybe not based on a game, but like you can watch the episodes in different orders and you play along with figuring out like what has happened, which has a kind of like game-like interactive element to it. Why is that happening now? And like, does that suggest that like the future of like all television or all movies is going to like become more game-like like are these mediums just totally gonna merge over time yeah so i would say no they're not going to totally merge over time i do think that there is more desire for immersive experiences so you know there are really well-known universes like marvel and star trek and looney tunes where you can take that beloved IP and you can translate it into a game. So if you really love that, you can go spend more time with it. And I think there's a real desire and demand to do that. And that has been something we've seen again and again in gaming is you have an incredible television IP or film IP and you can bring it to a game and that can really get people deeper in the universe. So the, the TV series only has so many episodes, but when you're not watching the TV series or whatever it is, you're spending your time in the game 
you're going to the conferences, you're going on the Star Trek cruise, you're finding different ways to engage in this universe that you really love and get closer and deeper to it. What we have struggled to see in in the past is what you really just talked about with The Last of Us, which is something that started off as a ritual game IP, make the leap to television and have those gaming narratives that Grant was talking about really succeed outside of gaming. Because in gaming, you can rely more on the mechanics and the narrative might not be as strong. Like it might just be, here's a piece of candy. Here's how you illuminate a match three game. And I think The Last of Us, in my opinion, is by far the most successful example of any of any gaming IP making it into a really, in my opinion, amazing television series. And I hope we see more. I really hope we see more of that because it is, you know, getting to have something you love and engage with it in different ways. I think that's something a lot of people enjoy and are looking for more of. I don't know if you, how about you guys, but when I watch an amazing TV series or play an amazing game, I want more of it. <laughs> I want so much more of it. And I think, you know, gaming and television can really play off each other to give people more of the things that they love. You've seen a lot of entertainment companies try to capitalize on this, where, you know, Fox and Disney and Warner Brothers have all had gaming studios at some point or other. And they've all, at some point or other, either partially or fully divested from them and then reinvested and then divested (laughs) and gone through a number of cycles on this front because it is hard to do, gaming in particular. It can take six years to build a successful game. It can take longer than six years. And you can also take six years and deliver a total dud. And it's really hard to tell what's going to happen there. And so it's a pretty risky and very capital intensive business. And it doesn't always work. And, and so you, I can kind of understand the, the cycle of thinking it's a good idea, the cycle of thinking it's a bad idea. And there will always be things that are better suited to gaming. Like, I don't think I would watch a Candy Crush TV show. I really don't. It sounds super boring. Maybe they could make it cool, but I'm probably not going to be showing up for that. Maybe maybe Grant is, but I will not. Gaming has really evolved in the last few decades from something you would play in the arcade where you'd have to go to a physical place to something you could play solo at home or cooperatively at home to now the vast majority of gaming being either mobile or connected to someone else over the internet. But one of the, the issues with internet play is that any connection with someone else is really hard to police. As someone who works in this space, how do you think about policing live interactions with people who could come from very different communities that have very different standards for speech and action? A lot of times gaming is lumped into servers, right? So you are on a server. So when I'm going in to play my favorite games, I am assigned to a server based on my geo, and then I play with people on that same server. You can change servers. So if you want to be at the Asia server, you can change to the Asia server. But for the most part, I'm in the Americas server. So it isn't as international as you would think, unfortunately, because of that server aspect of people being able to play together. The policing is really, really hard. So I'm sure you guys have seen a lot of the stories about toxicity in gaming. I think there's a lot of new tools that are coming out that allow us to use AI to try and monitor for that and cut it off. And then being very strict about the players that misbehave and kicking them out of the game. And that's tough because especially in free-to-play games, these people have spent a lot of money to reach a certain level. They'll have things they own in the game. 
And so kicking them out of the game will have an adverse financial impact because they'll have lost all of this stuff that they've invested in and this experience that they've invested in. But if they're a toxic member of the community, I think you have to do it to protect your community. That's a really good point that I haven't really thought about before is that if you're kind of like a troll on Twitter, like Twitter can, you know, kind of like ban you or or suspend your account or something like that. But they're but like there there may not be like meaningful or material adverse impact for the user. But if you do in fact care about, you know, the accumulation of of levels or points or or whatever, as well as like actual like real spending within a game, then the tools for for sanctioning are actually like more powerful, right? Like you don't want to violate those terms of service. So yeah, that's really interesting that there's like more of a carrot and stick there than I expected. It's often said that all art is political. And I know that some people don't think of video games as art, but they, they in my mind, are, are clearly art. Do you think your work is political? I definitely think it's political. I think it's political and more than what we just put forward. So, for example, Ukraine is a big maker of video games, as is Russia. And so last year when the invasion happened, you had gaming companies that were split, where half the company was situated in Russia and the other half was in Ukraine. And you had a ton, a ton of mobile gaming companies that had teams in the Ukraine that were having to figure out what to do, how to set people up that were getting them generators, that were, if the families wanted to leave the country, finding other locations for them. Gaming is a much more distributed industry than a lot of people realize. So it's not unusual for a a single game to be made by a team of people in four countries. And these are people you're interacting with daily, you're talking to over Zoom in like a real working situation. And I think that is becomes pretty political, right? Because if the if you're sitting in Los Angeles and the person that you talk to every day, their home country got invaded and the other dude on the call lives in Russia, it's it it creates a lot of interesting conversations and thought processes and um in a way more personal way than I think a lot of under other industries would experience it. Before we move on to our final segment, I'd love to do a round robin and hear what you guys are playing right now and maybe what's your favorite game. So I have been playing a lot of Stumble Guys. It's a pretty awesome game. So you are a, uh, a runner in a competition and you run a race with a bunch of other people trying to get to a destination. And it goes through a couple different rounds. So it goes from 32 to 16 to 8 to 4 and then sometimes from 8 to 1. And there's just one winner at the end. And you can invite your friends. You can play it with each other together, no matter where everyone is located. Highly recommend. It's really fun. You get to pick a cute little avatar. You can have cute little footprints that trail behind you as you run along and pick a cute name as well. I'm currently running around in a dinosaur suit, which is pretty cool looking. I'm not a big gamer. However, I do really want to plug a very cool element of a game which is called the uncensored library which is a library that's housed within minecraft that was i think originally conceived by reporters without borders and it holds a bunch of documents that are censored in different places around the world so if you're in a country that doesn't allow information about certain 
activists or political dissidents, you can access some of that information by going to Minecraft, going to the Uncensored Library and reading it there. And I have always thought that that is one of like the coolest uses of games to overcome censorship and to kind of like allow for cross-border communication. And I would love to see more efforts like that. So it's not, I wouldn't say it's a game that I'm playing, but I have explored the Uncensored Library and think it's really cool. I will say nothing as as highly inspiring as the Uncensored Library, which is definitely a very cool and important thing. And they, uh, I believe they take donations. So if you'd like to support them, you should. I've been diving into much more arcade style games on my phone, mostly because I don't have the time to play the immersive games as I used to. I bought Cyberpunk 2077 in August, and I've maybe put in 40 hours into it at this point. So I just don't have the time like I used to in high school and college to, re- to really dig in. Uh, but I do find the the more arcade style games to be good for when I'm watching something on TV or um, waiting in between uh, metro stops. I will also plug Wordle, which is Wordle, but it's about geography and places around the world, uh, which is a ton of fun to, to kind of get more into your geography. So foreign policy nerds, I would highly suggest that. And with that, let's move to our final segment where we each talk about something in the news we're following either culturally or politically. Zoe, why don't you kick us off? Since this is our last segment on entertainment, I'm going to do something in that category. I recently saw a show in New York off-Broadway called Titanic, which is a parody of Titanic, and it's a musical. And it's absolutely hilarious, really, really fun. The cast improvises some of it every night, so it's a little bit different every time you go. It's now kind of uh, achieved a cult status in in New York. And there are people apparently who've gone half a dozen times to see the show. But anyway, I would highly recommend it in a theater in Union Square. And if you find yourself in New York, you should go see Titanic. The State of the Union is always bad. It's a speech that always gets totally forgotten days after people give it, rarely makes a long-term impact. But this week... I was reminded of something Joe Biden said because I was going to buy tickets to a show. Wynton Marsalis was, is playing at the Kennedy Center, so I'd go to buy these tickets. They're more expensive than I expect, but I say, that's fine. You know, I'm going out on the town. My parents are coming. It'll be a great time. And then I get to the very end of the process. And what do I find but $50 of processing fees to be slapped on top of the ticket price? And Joe Biden, in his State of the Union, complained about resort fees, but he was talking largely about these junk fees that get put on at the end of every transaction. In the gaming space and in in sort of the app space, some of that comes from Apple charging an extra 30% rent on top of every transaction that happens within their app store. So these fees for doing nothing and this rent-seeking behavior is everywhere. And so... This is more of just a, I'm super frustrated. I'm very tired of these junk fees. I just want to pay the price on the 10 and go home. I don't care if it's even put in already beforehand. Just when I click the thing, tell me how much the, the bill's going to be, and then I'll happily pay. But don't, at the very end, be like, surprise, here's an additional uh, $50. 
With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver and follow Zoe at Z Weinberg. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by Mushroom Flower. That's right, Mushroom Flower, the new flower alternative sweeping the globe. Our cordyceps-based formula will have you up and moving with renewed energy. So after you've grown your new mushroom appendages, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy. Thank you.